in the first people's way of life, values are not something you learn separately. Values are implicit in every aspect of how you live. Everyone's part of the modern world that we're in, whether you're born indigenous or not. Yet, Nehiyal, Cree people know that when you put up those first three poles in putting up a teepee, well, that's the father, the mother, and the child. That's saying we are committed to our families. And then as you fill in the other poles, you're remembering the values that will make you a whole and happy human being. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Raven Hill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. It is an honor to have Kenneth Cohen back on the podcast after our last engrossing conversation about Qigong and Taoism. As passionate as he is about those topics, Native American medicine is his way of life, and that is what we explore in this episode. Ken is a traditional healer who has lived, practiced, and studied indigenous ways for most of his life. He has mentored under many noted medicine men and women and maintains close ties to his adopted Cree family. With inspiration from all of them, Ken wrote the profound book, Honoring the Medicine, The Essential Guide to Native American Healing, that was published by Random House in 2003. Ken opens this discussion with a beautiful and heartwarming acknowledgement. And from there, we cover many topics such as indigenous values, animals and nature as teachers, respect for culture, wisdom of elders, and interconnectedness to all beings and things. He also shares with us a deeply moving protocol that is part of erecting a teepee, with each pole representing a crucial life value. His stories are captivating, his knowledge deep and diverse, and his energy grounding. Ken is like no other human being, and I am grateful to have been able to spend more time in his company and to share his teachings with you. Please enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Kenneth Cohen. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm so excited to have you back, and I'm really honored that you agreed to come back and talk today. Last time we talked a lot about Chinese medicine and Taoism and Qigong. We have a very different lineup of topics for today. And to begin, I would like to welcome you to do a traditional introduction. Thank you. And I I do want to mention that I know some of our listeners know me in the, uh, for my uh, so-called expertise in uh, Qigong and Chinese healing arts and Tai Chi. And that is how I make my living. And I, I certainly love it. It's important for my own health and hopefully for the health of my students and clients. However, I have another path that's really primary for me. Uh, and the way to understand this is, let's say someone had a degree in, oh, let's say mathematics but also a degree in French language. Well, you wouldn't, to start a mathematics class, begin in this way. Maintenant, on commence, je vais vous enseigner un peu de... You wouldn't start speaking French, nor would you be teaching mathematics, let's say in English, in a French language class. So 
to do justice to these two very different, yes, somewhat related, but very different ways of knowing, very different ways of being. I don't mix paradigms. So certainly the Qigong work and the way I was trained by traditional native elders are both an influence on me personally. However, as an educator, I keep them somewhat separate. And uh, that's also so that people realize the amount of time and uh, sacrifice that's required to learn anything with depth. Uh, as one of my teachers put it, if you dig a hundred wells, but none are deep enough to reach water, then they're all useless. And I know I'm, I'm somewhat unusual in this regard as most people probably would have just one area they're sort of sticking to. Uh, but for me, this was not a matter of choice and hopefully we'll get into this in the interview and in your questions. It's really what life presented. And it was a matter of me getting, hopefully getting my ego out of the way so I could more accurately listen to and have the courage to follow creator's instructions. And when we decide not to follow those instructions and everyone always has that right, we do have free will, there are some consequences. For me, it would have been a lesser life. So again, I'll be sharing entirely from my limited understanding of the indigenous perspective. Now, to begin, I, I want to say that anytime we speak about spiritual matters, and I'm sure that will come up in the course of our conversation, we are invoking and presenting ourselves to those spiritual forces. So there is an element of ceremony, even in a discussion such as this. And thus, I always begin either an in-person or online or radio talk or any other media talk about indigenous healing or First Nations healing by smudging, that is by doing a purification, a cleansing with certain sacred plants that we understand creator put on this earth for our purification, for our cleansing. So I'm going to do that now and uh, maybe some of the listeners might even, I don't, I'm not sure this is possible, might feel the energy or sense the sacred smoke that's coming from my mixture of sage. Uh, well, we call it sage, but it's actually what I'm using here is Artemisia. Uh, so it's not in the salvia or sage family, but popularly it's known as sage. This is Artemisia varietal that I gather with prayer here in the mountains of Colorado and mixed with some sweet grass, uh, also gathered with, with prayer and with song, because there are songs we sing to show our respect and love for these plants. So I've lit it and I'm going to just smudge myself with the smoke. I remember when my daughter was younger, I used to tell she loved smudging and still does. And I would tell her, you know, it's like taking a shower in smoke. And she just loved it and enjoyed it. And 
I'm going to smudge my computer and my web camera and microphone. And Todd, maybe you'll even feel it as well. So I've offered the smoke. And now I'd uh, like to introduce myself, which is also part of our tradition. And then maybe say a few other words before we begin our uh, discussion. Tansi, Iwakomaguntik, Nitotimtik, Nitsigason, Masquasaguatamo, or Ken Cohen. Utsinia, the Indian Peaks Wilderness of Colorado. What I said was hello, my relatives and my friends. My name in Cree is Masquasaguatamo. Of course, my English name is Ken Cohen. And then I said, I'm from the Indian Peaks Wilderness area, but this is traditional Arapaho territory. I'm grateful to be a guest on their land. And I want to add that my ancestry is Jewish. Uh, a tradition I, I greatly respect, although I wasn't raised within that tradition. Frankly, I don't know that much about it. But I'm also a member of a Nehiao or Cree family through adoption in my youth. And uh, again, I'm speaking to you from Arapaho land, and I am grateful to be here. And finally, I'd like to say, and I'll, I'll say this in, uh, in English, uh, I'm grateful to Creator and for this beautiful place where I live, for the changing seasons, the wonderful wildflowers that I'm seeing everywhere, for the four-legged relatives, for that bear that came right outside my window, middle of the night last night. Grateful to him or her, not sure which, it was dark. Grateful to the winged ones, to the eagles, the hawk, the crows, and those wonderful playful magpies that I hear and see every morning. Grateful for the rain, for the beautiful stream, the song that that stream sings just in front of my home. For Asani, that is for these beautiful mountains here. For those that swim in the waters, those that walk on the land, those that fly above us. For the ancestors, grateful to the four winds. And most of all, I'm so grateful for my family and to Creator for the gift of life, all my relations. So, Todd, I am uh, happy to speak with you at this time and to uh, share with our listeners. I, I, although I was adopted by a Cree, Cree family, and even before that time, very strictly trained by traditional elders, some of whom I apprenticed to, 
Nevertheless, I want to be clear that I'm not representing any native nation or clan. I'm speaking from my own experience and speaking with deep gratitude to the elders and communities to whom I am accountable. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Thank you for that beautiful and warming introduction. Thank you again for coming back onto the podcast. Your name, Masquas Guatamo? Guatamo. Uh -huh. can, you, can you say it again? Masqua means bear. Saguatamo means a large Saguatamo. hawk in, uh, in Cree. In fact, I'll tell you a funny story about my, my name. Uh, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at a First Nations conference, uh, mostly held by Anishinaabe, that is Ojibwe and uh, Cree people, that was taking place in Regina, Saskatchewan, uh, hosted by a, an HIV and hepatitis clinic. And uh, after the conference was over, I volunteered my time as a traditional healer to do indigenous counseling and healing work, what we call doctoring, with uh, some of the clients at the healing center that had hosted the conference. And the second day that I was there, there was a, an elder that came into the kitchen. I was on lunch break and we were all kind of hanging around having some delicious Pascua Mustos, buffalo, buffalo stew, and some bannock, which is a, a kind of bread, uh, the equivalent to uh, sort of like fry bread in the United States. So we're sitting around eating and I can see this, uh, uh, obviously an indigenous First Nations elder coming into the space there. And he was looking for the traditional healer. And I heard him ask one of the ladies, you know, I heard there's this guy here uh, who's doing doctoring and my wife recently got out of the hospital, I'd like to request his services. And I saw her pointing with her lips, you know, moving her head towards me, but he got this confused look on his face because let me tell you, I don't exactly look the part. <laughs> so he, uh, he sat down next to me and I could see you at first, he was uh, understandably hesitant to speak with me. So I said to him, uh, Mushum, grandfather, I addressed him in Cree as grandfather. I said, Mushum, would you like a little bit of that uh, buffalo stew? It's, uh, it's really delicious. And uh, he said, sure. So I got up and, you know, following protocol, offered the elders some food. And while I'm there, uh, while I was up there by the stove, I said, would you like some bannock with it? Yeah, that would be good. Uh, like some, want me to put some butter on the bannock? Yeah. So buttered up the bannock and brought him his food, brought him a cup of coffee. He said, uh, you know, he said, thank you. And he said, uh, are you that guy who's doing the doctoring? I said, uh, yeah. He says, what's, what's your name? I said, uh, well, my English name or my Cree name? You got a Cree name? I said, yeah. He said, it's Mascos Aguatamo. He started tearing up. He said, you know, I haven't heard that name, Saguatamo, in many years because that was his dad's name. And they used to call him Saji as a sort of nickname but it was short for Saguatamo, means a, a large hawk. Oh, and, wow. uh, and we started talking a little bit about 
about Cree culture, about names, about naming ceremonies. I made it clear to him that I wasn't uh, born with Cree ancestry. I don't share the ancestors or the same type of historical trauma. I say not the same type because my Jewish ancestors suffered a different type of trauma. My, my grandmother yes, watched, watched her uh, brother, my Russian Jewish grandmother watched her brother die in her arms when the czar's soldiers came into her home and just started shooting because there were Jews living there. But I, I don't share uh, the Cree history, uh, just the love of and knowledge of culture. Uh, so anyway, we spoke, we, you could say we became relatives. We became more than friends, but relatives. And uh, so sometimes, you know, sometimes a name opens a door, but as with any medicine, and a name is a medicine, you, you have to earn it, just like with songs. You know, sometimes people hear me sing a, a song and they say, oh, can you teach me that? Well, that, that's, uh, except for certain circumstances, that could be considered a, a bit arrogant because if I don't know the person, then how could they assume that they have earned that song or the story that goes with it, the teachings that go with it? So each, each song that, that I sing, for example, I, I keep a repertoire of about, uh, I guess about 350 songs that I, I keep in memory. And I wasn't allowed to record those. I had to learn them by being around the ceremonies and the elders and uh, so appreciate their kindness where, you know, sometimes they would take me aside and say, well, we need to work on your pronunciation or, or we need to make sure you understand the meaning of each of the words and the story that goes with it or the history of that song. So whether, whether it's a name or any other kind of medicine, we, we need to earn what we learn. And that's, that's a different concept than the sort of Western way of you know, sitting in a classroom or you hear a song and you assume you have the right to learn it and sing it, or you hear a story and you might assume that uh, you, can, you can just repeat it. But you have to kind of ask, ask permission. You know, even, even with my book, I was so nervous about writing this book, even though so many elders had asked me to, to write it, to write uh, the book that I called Honoring the Medicine, uh, that I, I essentially created my own peer review committee. I sent the manuscript out to uh, people like Vi Hilbert, the great elder among the Lachutzid, the uh, nation of Chief uh, Silk, Chief Seattle, uh, I sent the manuscript to some Cree elders, to uh, a very great uh, Cherokee elder. So a group of different people representing different nations around uh, Turtle Island or North America. And then I had to visit them in person because you know, the traditional protocol is not that you, you call them over the phone or you then ask them to send you an endorsement or, or to tell you what's wrong with your book. You've got to meet them. So I went out to the Northwest, for example, during the winter ceremonials. And so Vi Hilbert asked her what she felt about the book. She said, you better publish that. I said, grandmother, do you have any criticisms, anything I need to change? She said, no, you better, you better publish that book. And uh, went to see one of the chiefs, uh, chief and elder uh, from one of the First Nations in Saskatchewan. And she had the same, uh, same reaction. 
Uh, I was actually looking for an excuse not to continue with the book because it's a big responsibility. But, uh, you know, since I had that uh, support and kindness shown by so many different elders, I thought, okay, I guess it's all right. And then my dad, my Cree dad, Andy Natauhau from Sturgeon Lake First Nation, uh, that is the, the dad who adopted me. I feel funny saying that because I just think of him as my dad. Uh, but I sent him a ticket for him and my brother to fly down from, I think they were flying down from Saskatoon. And uh, mostly just to visit, visit with family. I had some frequent flyer miles, so I thought I'm going I'm to use them, get together with my family. So they flew down to Colorado. And my dad knew I was working on this book. And I said, uh, Dad, would you, uh, could you find out? if the, the, the spirits approve, especially if the great mystery approves of this project. He said, bring me the title page of the book. I said, do you need the whole manuscript? Because I hadn't submitted final copy yet to the publisher. He said, no, just the title page. So I went inside, printed out from my computer the title page of the book honoring the medicine. And he spread out a prayer blanket, took out his uh, sacred pipe and uh, materials for smudging and other ritual things that he needed. And then he did a beautiful ceremony, prayed, asking for guidance. Then he said something to my brother, my Cree brother in, uh, in Cree. And my Cree isn't fluent, fluent enough to have understood. So my brother looks at me and says in English, Ken, do you have a tape recorder? I said, uh, uh, yeah. He says, go in and get it. And I'm thinking to myself, why would anyone ask for a tape recorder during a ceremony? We're not allowed to take photos. We're not allowed to record. But I guess the mantu, the spirits, were re requesting that. And it's up to us just to listen to them. So I ran inside the, my log cabin, got a little cassette recorder it outside, turned it on. Then my dad started speaking and I could tell he was in a, I guess you'd call it an altered state. Maybe we would say a state of communion with those spiritual forces. I could tell he was, uh, was a sort of a prayer or a visionary speech and wanted me to record it. It was all in Cree. And when he was done, my brother said, okay, you can turn off the recorder. I had a feeling what had happened. Then my dad uh, explained to me, he said the uh, spirit just uh, spoke the introduction to my book. So I have to have that introduction in Cree. And a group of people, group of Cree scholars uh, up in Canada, they put it into the syllabics. You know, Cree have had their own way of representing their language for a long time. Uh, I guess the more famous syllabic system is the Sequoia syllabary among the Cherokee. And I think that was created around the 1830s, if I remember right. And, and, that, and it's an ex extraordinary feat, extraordinary accomplishment to develop a way of representing a language just from scratch. But I think what happened among the Cree is even more unusual because in one night, Calling Badger 
uh, Korean medicine man received that uh, syllabary, that representational system. So it was received directly from spirit. In fact, he was told that a white uh, Christian minister would try to take credit for that syllabary. But I, I accept the uh, traditional teaching about the syllabary, that it was definitely creation of a, of a Cree medicine man. And so that introduction spoken by my dad is the introduction to my book in Cree syllabics and in English. And I wrote a letter after, you know, after we had it all translated and ready to go, ready to be included. I wrote a letter to the publisher, to my editor at Random House. And I said, uh, I need in writing from you a promise that this introduction will be included. It's going to be precedent setting. It'll be the first time that a major publisher has included an introduction in an indigenous language, let alone in syllabics. And I said, unless I have that in writing, I'm not going to submit the final copy of my book. Contract or not. I mean, yes, I'd signed a contract, but let me tell you, spirit takes precedence for me. And I said, I need this in writing. It will be a matter of cultural pride for so many indigenous people to see that at the front of that book is a traditional elder who's spoken these words in an original language. So I got that promise and it was included in the book. And at that point, I felt okay about submitting it to, to Random House uh, because then I felt, well, Maybe I've earned having the book published, but that's not a final thing. You keep earning the medicine throughout your life. You know, the journey, the journey doesn't stop. There's no end point. We don't receive a degree in Native American medicine. There's no degree. There's no, uh, we remain accountable to our community and to a creator. And we keep re-earning it through our dedication to spirit and to being of service in the world. So anyway, that's what I wanted to, to say. Uh, again, just to clear up some uh, misunderstandings because unfortunately a lot of people think, oh, hey, having an Indian name, that sounds cool. I think I'm gonna give myself an Indian name. Uh, that's that's not, how, not how it works. How did you earn your name? Well, my uh, I was an, originally an apprentice actually to a Cherokee medicine man even earlier in my life named Katua. And uh, those of you who know about Cherokee history, you know that the Cherokee themselves were uh, not just uh, known as the Anyawea, the principal people, but they were known as the Anipatua, people of Katua, which also refers to an ancient town, a sort of uh, almost like a birthplace of Cherokee people. So I had been an apprentice to him for, for quite a while. And uh, originally learned doctoring from him and a lot of stories and cultural teachings. And uh, for some reason, at one point, he said, you know, you have an Indian name. I said, no, not that I know of. He said, yeah. So for him, it was a little, uh, maybe a different process than for other people. He said, this is your name. And he told me it was Bear Hawk. And he told, told me how to say it in Cherokee, Yonatawodi. Uh, so that was even before uh, my adoption with my, my Cree family. And uh, he, was, he was a wonderful teacher. He passed on in 1987. 
Uh, I've been at naming ceremonies, and again, they're they're different for different people. I was at one uh, Cree ceremony where an individual was blessed with a stone in in the process of receiving their name. I was in another ceremony with a, an elder from another nation where uh, the elder gave that person a name based on their vision quest. And then each of us in the circle, mostly indigenous brothers and sisters, uh, said welcome and then said that person's name. So each of us in the circle said welcome and then we would say their name. And then we sang some honoring songs, both the person who gave the name and then he also asked me to sing a few honoring songs for that person. So there are different, different procedures, different ways. Uh, but mine seemed to just occur almost as a matter of fact, as uh, something that just flowed in the course of my learning from uh, Katua. Now, I know you have some stories about bears, and you just mentioned a bear came to visit you last night. I want to hear about hawks as well. But before we move forward, does your dad remember that transmission of the introduction, or was he in such a trance state that... Oh, yes, he, he remembered. He's passed he now, but he... He uh, definitely, definitely remembered. And of course, I made sure I sent a copy of the book to him. And my book launch was at my own expense. Uh, yes, Random House offered to do a book launch at some uh, bookstores in the United States, which I did eventually visit. And I enjoyed doing talks about my book and about indigenous culture in, in general and my own experiences. But I felt I really needed to honor the people that had been so kind to me. And so I got in contact with, uh, what's the name of it? McNally Robinson, I think that was the name of it. Uh, big bookstore in uh, Saskatoon. It's okay, I'm not familiar with it. In the, in the province. And uh, I asked them if they'd be interested in hosting me for a, a talk about my new book. And they said, yes. And then I contacted a couple of cultural organizations to get names and addresses of principal elders throughout the province, among the Nehiao, that is the Cree, among uh, Blackfoot people, among Diné people. And I sent out uh, invitations to every good elder I heard about and invited them to a dinner that I would host and of course pay for, and invited them to, uh, if they were interested, to attend my talk. And many of them showed up. It was a beautiful, joyous occasion. We had a big dinner together. I introduced the elders who were there before my talk, expressed my gratitude, spoke for a while, had some discussion. And I felt this was a good, a good way to begin. Good way to begin, uh, I don't know what to call it, promoting or sharing some of the message from my book. And I was so honored when a few of the people wrote to me about a year later that they were using my book as part of cultural education among uh, First Nations people. Wow, that is an honor. Now, this was what, nearly 20 years ago, wasn't it? It was, it was 2003. Three, yeah. Honoring the Medicine was published. Mm -hmm. And how has been the kind of the how have people received it since then? Oh, wonderful. Absolutely, absolutely wonderful. I've had only positive uh, support from so many people. And 
uh, especially I've been delighted when uh, indigenous owned uh, bookstores have invited me to present about my book, which I've done in quite, quite a number of places and, and native communities. Uh, so the response has really been, really been great. Mm-hmm. Now, we did our last interview, again, primarily on Chinese culture and Chinese philosophy and indigenous practices there. I don't recall there being the same sort of introduction or ceremony that you gave with this one. I know in both cases, you are born as an outsider. You have established deep roots in both cultures and in both um, especially both cultures of medicine and language and philosophy. Is there a reason why there is a, why there is, a, I guess, a more pronounced introduction to this topic than there was to the topic of Chinese culture and philosophy? It, because it's not a subject. This is not a subject. This is a way of life, a way of thinking, and there are protocols required for the practice of this medicine, uh, whether it's uh, how I introduce myself, acknowledging the land, acknowledging my teachers, having reciprocity, where, for example, when I was given an advance by the publisher, I think it worked out to a dollar and a quarter an hour I was paid. So don't, <laughs> seriously, I did the math. I believe you. I gave a significant amount of money to different indigenous uh, Native American uh, rights groups and environmental groups as well that are uh, consistent with Native American values. Uh, but there, you know, there are, there are ways of relating that are, uh, you know, as I call protocols that are part of Native American tradition. Because again, it's not simply, oh, I read this in a book, or I learned it from a teacher, or this is what I study. This is not something I study. This is my way of life. This is my way of thinking. When I see that bear, I'm ready to sing a song to that bear. And I know those songs. And I'll thank, I'll thank that bear for visiting me and for bringing such beautiful medicine and inspiration. And then when I see that root growing in nature, when I see, I'm not gonna mention the sacred Cree name, let's use the English name, Osha root. Some people call it bear root, Logusticum poteri. Some people even call it tobacco root. When I see that bear root, and I know how the bear love to eat it, they use it as medicine, and that the bear has gifted us with that medicine as well. And I know what it's used for. I know the song to sing when I pick it. Then that's also making a deeper connection with the land, with Aski, with the earth, with our creature teachers, with the bear and with the forest. So if I'm gathering that root, I sing that song. 
If I don't know the song for a particular plant, I know a generic song. We address in our culture, if I don't know the name of that plant, I'll call it by their chief. I'll call it tobacco. I'll sing the Cree tobacco song. And I'm not only offering tobacco, I'm singing that tobacco song as I gather that plant. That plant. And as long as I follow my intent, that is, I don't gather that medicine to sell it, I don't commercialize it, I use it in service to help other people. I don't over-harvest it. I gather only what I need. I continue with an attitude of respect and gratitude. Only if I do those things is the power of that plant made available to that client that might be using that plant that I might, in a sense, uh, recommend or suggest that they use it for a particular difficulty. So there's the reciprocity and the obligation to my family, to the community, to the earth, to creator. It's not, it's, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with other ways of doing things. As you mentioned in the Chinese context, the, the ways of transmitting and receiving knowledge and wisdom are somewhat different. There are some similarities, but there are some differences as well. Uh, but this is the way you know I was trained and I tried to honor that, honored my beloved elders the way they taught me. They were strict old time elders. You know in one one case the the four tests that one of my elders put me through, the last one was life or death. I'm not talking about symbolic life or death. You know, some people might have a kind of psych psychological attitude and say, oh yeah, we die to the past to be reborn in the present. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about anything symbolic. I mean, you're either dead or alive. That's how serious this was. One of my elders, his own son, dropped out of the training because he was so frightened of what was coming. Uh, so these things are not uh, to be undertaken lightly. That's why I say it's not a subject. I know it's become a little bit of a cliche, but it's true. You don't choose the medicine. It chooses you. And then you have to decide if you're willing to live that life and the uh, sacrifices involved. You're not going to become rich. You're not going to become famous. And you're going to be dedicated to a lifetime of service. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not easy. I remember when Katua, you know, my first teacher, he was once, uh, I, was, I was visiting him at his house and there was a young guy, even younger than me, that came by, I guess he heard about this Cherokee medicine man. And I remember being kind of astonished when this guy said, uh, Katua, you know, I, I'd like to learn Indian medicine. Could, you think you could teach me? Katula looks at him and says, in his uh, Oklahoma accent, which I won't try to imitate, he said, I wouldn't wish that curse on anybody. And then he explained to that young man what he himself had been through, you know, being born with typhoid fever, 
and then having cancer and emphysema most of his life. And the, uh, have to say, stupidity of faceting gemstones without wearing a mask. Katua used to tell me, uh, you know, why he had such serious lung problems. But he also advised, he said, uh, you know, I hope when I die, someone takes my lungs out of my body because there's got to be so much diamond emerald <laughs> ruby dust in it. That's, it's going to be worth a lot of money. You know, we'd, we'd start laughing. But man, what, what, he had, what he had been through, uh, you know, he said he'd done just about everything in his life you could imagine. He'd even been a mercenary soldier at one point. Uh, he had a hard life, very hard life. He'd gone through a lot, of, a lot of trials and tribulations in the course of learning his way. He spent many years drunk, came out of that, luckily. Uh, so, you know, I'm not saying that, that suffering is required in order to learn. I mean, there are people that make a virtue of suffering. I, I really feel that's a mistake. Uh, but rather, we say, uh, Creator, I'm going to follow the path you've laid out in front of me to the best of my ability. And I'll neither pursue suffering nor reject it. I'll, never, I'll neither pursue pleasure nor reject it. But rather, I'll try to live with an integrity and courage that path that you've written in my heart, those instructions. That's, that's the challenge. Um, How did you come to be adopted by your Cree family? That might be a little bit too long a story to tell right now. Uh, look, I'm not trying to sell my book, but take a look at my book. I do, I do outline it. Yes. Essentially what happened is there was a Cree activist uh, uh, who was in the hospital and she had had a dream about me. Uh, and uh, she, she contacted me. I was eventually uh, brought into the hospital. She had very serious cancer. Uh, stage four, she was given not more than a week to live. And through the, uh, through the doctoring and the prayers and the healing practices that I do, she was out of the hospital in a week. And uh, I later later got to meet various uh, elders. So there were, there were a whole series of circumstances. I mean, the very first time, let me, give you, let me give you one other example of what sort of led me eventually to having this wonderful connection with my, my family. Uh, the very first time I went to Saskatoon, it was the University of Saskatoon that had invited me and also the Canadian uh, Ministry of Culture and also Health Canada. There were three hosting organizations. And they had invited me to give a week of talks about Taoism, about the ancient and what could be called indigenous spirituality of China, which is my, my other area that I, I've trained in. Well, before, before I got to Saskatoon, I wrote to the professor who had arranged this whole event, Dr. Julian Paz, and told him that although you know me as a scholar and practitioner of Chinese culture, my primary path is actually Native American. That's my values, that's the way I think, that's what I live by. If, you, if I had to say I have a religion, even though the religion is not really the right word, uh, that would be my religion. 
So in accord with that, being in an area that is belongs to First Nations people, my protocol requires that I ask permission of a local elder before I teach on their land, even though what I'm teaching is from China. Well, Dr. Paz, I think, was a little bit nervous, worried that after all, all the advertisements and the official uh, reception I was going to get from the, one of the two of the Canadian ministers from the federal government who were going to fly into Saskatoon to attend some of my talks. He was worried I might not get the permission and might not be able to do it. I said, don't worry, this is, this is a way of expressing uh, reciprocity and gratitude. Uh, there's not going to be a problem. So I arrived in Saskatoon. And Dr. Paz told me he contacted one of the teachers of the Cree language who suggested I go to a uh, cultural center and speak to people there. And I should be able to meet someone, one of the elders to ask permission. So I go there and I'm given the name of a particular elder. I call him on the phone. He invites me to his home. I offer him tobacco. And to make a long story short, I was uh, welcomed into the province. And when I explained my own previous background, uh, he said he hoped I would also practice healing work and teach about culture uh, within uh, Saskatchewan, which I did and was uh, honored when one of the Native Friendship Centers hosted me and a few other indigenous organizations. Uh, so that, you know, one thing kind of leads to another if you're living in a good way and if spirit approves, doors open, and it eventually led to my meeting with the man who became my, my dad. Uh, so I'm very, very grateful for all of that and try to live in a way that makes me uh, worthy of those things that were gifted to me. And Ketawa came into your life long before that. That's correct. Right. Yeah. Okay. And he was your primary teacher of... Uh, medicine no no he was my first he was your first okay but i learned from others i've had about uh i've never counted but that must be around six or seven uh principal uh, elders that i worked with two of whom i uh apprenticed to and uh but significant amount of time with each of them picked up many songs along the way um uh, so I've had a sort of multicultural education, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. And with the name Bear Hawk, where did the hawk come from? And is there, oh, where did the bear and the hawk come from in the name? But I know you have some bear stories, but do you also feel a strong connection to the hawk? There are many different associations with different animals. Some of them are cultural. Some of them come from an individual's dreams. Some of them come from teachings you might receive from, from an elder. Now, we know that the bear, for example, is often a teacher of herbal medicines. Uh, in fact, in, among some nations, if you're born into the bear clan, usually a matrilineal clan, it, it often means you have a special connection with healing plants. And the bear like to dig up the plants, and they, they know them. Now, wildlife biologists have noted that uh, if a bear has a, uh, let's say, a skin infection, 
it will dig up a plant that's good for those skin infections and chew it and then spit the mastication out on top of that infected wound. Uh, so bear actually know, they know many of the plants and there's, there are stories about people following a bear to learn about the plants. Also the bear is the great dreamer. Bear goes to sleep in the autumn and reawakens, you could say in the spring. The mother bear gives birth to the cubs during the hibernation. So in a similar way, the bear takes us through our daily autumn and winter season, takes us through the nighttime and helps us understand our dreams. And there are particular bear songs and altars and practices to help us have more meaningful dreams or to be better interpreters of dreams. Now, on the other hand, the hawk is like a, sort of related to the eagle, flies very high, sees things from a broader perspective and has a quick, quick perception, isn't fooled by external appearances. So they're, they're complementary medicines, I suppose. But again, there are many teachings, many stories, many songs, so many things associated with, uh, with every, every creature, every animal. I mean, that's, that's our university. If you just go outside and every, everything out there has a, a lesson to teach. You know, like a few weeks ago, I noticed here in Colorado, a, uh, something really, really unusual. First of all, more bare root than I've ever seen. I've lived here since 1981. I've never seen so much bear root. Well, if there's that much bear root, which is a, a very strong uh, healing herb, that must mean we're going to need it. So I think this is going to be a difficult winter for a lot of people, maybe because of the pandemic. Uh, so every everything that we see in a natural environment has a lesson for us if we know how to listen and that's and that's the big difficulty is how to get our ego out of the way get our conditioning out of the way our belief systems get our belief systems out of the way you know do i do i believe in these things uh oh i hope not hope not a belief is something that interferes with perception and experience do i believe that uh that Autumn is going to follow the summer. It's not a matter of belief. It's our experience. That's the natural cycles. That's what it is to be alive. Do I believe I'm going to die someday? It's not a matter of belief. I know it. You feel it. You see it. You know it. Do I believe that the sun is shining in the morning? It's not a matter of belief. Do I need the theory of electromagnetism to know that the sun is out there? Of course not. So I, I think we're. We're in a society that's so kind of left brain and belief obsessed that we, we forget about what presents itself immediately without the mediation of thought, without the mediation of habit, what we can perceive through our, our, our eyes and our spiritual eyes, our ears and our spiritual ears. You know, even, even that word nehiao, the Cree word for Cree, 
it, it means four bodies. The etymology of indigenous words is so interesting. It means four bodies. It means our emotions, our mind, our spirit, and our body, our physical body, all in harmony. But that's that's what it means to be to really be nehia, because if you're truly Cree, then you're living by those values, especially, and forgive my poor pronunciation, especially Mio uh, Pimatisuin, how to live a, a good life. And that good life means everything from natural foods diet, you could say, good diet, good food, not adulterated, not with pesticides, not with chemicals. Uh, it includes exercise, but not so much in the gym. The exercise you, you get from hiking, from being outdoors, from hunting, from trapping, from aspects of the natural lifestyle, as much as you're able to live it, depending upon where you're living. It comes from, as one scholar put it, echoing the, uh, rather living in a way that honors the echo of the past in the present, living according to those old, values so that harmonious good natural way of life that's neopimatiswin that's that's part of that that value system and again you know going back to your one of your earlier questions about what why why don't i uh oh speak as much about uh, perhaps values or reciprocity or protocols when i'm talking about say Chinese language, Chinese culture, it's different. It's different and it has its own uniqueness, its own beauty. But there are, again, teachings that are specific to first people's culture. And we have to be careful about indiscriminately mixing them. You know, because every, you know, in the, let me put it this way, in the first people's way of life, Values are not something you learn separately, like taking you know, an ethics class, right? Taking a class in ethics. It, it doesn't work that way. The values are implicit in every aspect of how you live. If you're, okay, we're not living in teepees today, obviously. Every, everyone's part of the modern world that we're in, whether you're born indigenous or not, yet, Nehiao, Cree people know that when you put up those first three poles in putting up a teepee, as let's say as today as a form of cultural education, well, that's the father, the mother, and the child. That's, that's saying we are committed to our families. And then as you fill in the other poles, there, there are 15 poles in the Cree teepee, you're remembering the values that will make you a whole and happy human being. So just putting up the teepee is education. You know, what, what are those values? That, give you an example. So that first teepee pole, that's uh, listening to and being obedient to tradition. The second TP pole, as you're putting up that pole, you're thinking of the importance of respect. That's, that's a core value in Indian country. 
respect for all forms of life and not assuming that human beings are sort of the pinnacle that we're at the top. In fact, the way I see it is we have an obligation to learn from our older and wiser relatives. No one's as old as a rock. You know, you look at the lines on a rock, those are like wrinkles in the face of someone who's millions of years old or at least tens of thousands of years old. So no one's as old or as wise as a rock. And then it's only after the stone people were here that you had the plants and the plants needed the minerals from the rock. The rock is more independent. The plant is a higher level of dependency, but less, a little bit less intelligent. Then you have the animals who, unlike the plant, cannot manufacture the nutrients for life within their own bodies. You know, the plant, what does the plant need? It needs the water from the ground, you know, it needs the sunlight, it needs the air. But the, the animal has to eat other animals and plants. So they're even more dependent. And then finally, you have the most dependent, least intelligent form of life. Guess who that is, right? That's <laughs> us, us two-leggeds. That's the human beings. So we're looking at things in a very different way than this anthropocentric, human-centered, I would even say egotistical way that characterizes the so-called Western way of thinking, or, or I should put it Euro-American way of thinking. That respect is respect for all, especially for our elders, not just elder people, but elders in the natural world. So that All of that is in the second TV poll. Now, I know you got some other questions, so I'll just go through a few of these more quickly. No, it's, please. So, uh, you know, that third poll is humility. That's another, oh, that's another big thing. Wow, you know, I think we would need another hour just to talk about that, <laughs> about the importance of realizing that we are so young, so new, we know so little compared to those older relatives that we're, we're so, we're just like a speck compared to the ancient wisdom of Achakosak, of, of the stars, the star people who were here long before the earth. So when we realize our, our place in the natural world, then that gives us humility rather than saying, oh, I have a degree in indigenous studies. I've got a PhD. You better look up to me. Look how much knowledge I have. Sometimes I think these people have such big left hemispheres. I wonder how they stand balanced. You know, they need, a, they need something to just to hold this, their left hemisphere in their hands because they're <laughs> top heavy and left weighted. So humility is important. And the fourth TP poll is happiness. There's something to be said for joie de vivre, you know, using the French word, joy of life. I mentioned earlier that, you know, some people might uh, make a virtue of their suffering. I, I think that's wrong. Oh, my scars are bigger than yours. I've suffered more. I'm, I'm a more worthy person because I've suffered so much. Uh-uh. I don't mean to offend anyone. Yes, we learn from our suffering. Yes, Suffering remains a horrible problem. I mean, there are political and social issues that, I mean, think of what we, what people are discovering now, what has been known in Indian communities, the horrors that occurred and the consequence of those horrors because of the residential school system, all those dead children that were discovered, buried in unnamed graves around these residential schools. I know people that this has happened to. I was, you know, I was sitting next to a, a Lakota elder one time, a guy was in his 80s at a cultural gathering, and he had a hard time speaking. His voice kind of sounded like that. You know, he could hardly speak. 
we we were talking about this and that. I, I really liked this guy, and I guess he liked me. You know, we struck up a conversation, and he uh, during the feast part at the end of this gathering, everybody was sharing some food, and he said, "I, I guess you're wondering why I speak this way." I said, "Yes, uh, grandfather." He said, "Take a look at my mouth." He opens his mouth and he shows me he's got no tongue. He said, "When he was eight years old, he was in a boarding school, as you know, children were removed forcibly removed from their families, and he." The nuns heard him speaking his language, speaking Lakota. They took him in another room. They took his scissors. They cut out his tongue. They cut, cut out the tongue of an eight-year-old. Yeah, we should all feel like crying when we hear that story. And imagine the consequences, of the, the intergenerational trauma that remains today. Aside from the abuses that are still happening because of racism, because of loss of land, loss of culture because of white privilege. So these are, these are realities. And yet, and yet we're reminded with that fourth TV poll that there's so much to be happy about, that the world is beautiful. The earth is still beautiful. We can still have beautiful children. We still have our families. We still have our lives. We still have these beloved elders who can teach us, who can be examples for us. So happiness is important. Let's not forget it. I'll go quickly through some of the others. I said I was going to go quickly. Now I'll really go quickly. <laughs> Number five is the gift of love. And again, you know, every form of love, including love of, of creation, love of, love of people, love of our families. Uh, gift of faith, faith especially as uh, openness, not, not a blind obedience, not a blind belief system, not rigidity of thought, but faith as openness. Seventh TP pole is the gift of kinship that is realizing that we are all related. We're all relatives. We're all breathing the same air. And I'm including the animals and the plants in this. We all come from the earth. We all return to the earth. There's a beautiful Cree song that that's the words of the song. We come from the earth, we return to the earth. Beautiful, beautiful song. So kinship. Cleanliness is number eight. Cleanliness of mind and body. And that means making an effort to not allow our words, especially, you know, our words have power, not allow our words or mind to be polluted. It's not only that we have to be activists to stop the pollution of our beautiful mother earth, but also not allow our minds to be polluted, to keep that clarity and cleanliness. And so important, number nine is uh, gratitude, gratefulness. Number 10 is sharing, because if you have if you've got a gift and you don't share it, if you've got food and you don't share it, you don't offer hospitality to others that need it, then what kind of world are we going to create? You know, what kind of world are we going to leave for our, our children and our grandchildren? So sharing is uh, so important. And strength, developing strength, kind of, you know, I think of that number 11 as, as core strength, as having the ability to 
remain true to your principles, to what you know is right, even in the face of adversity. So strength is important. Number 12 is uh, being devoted to raising our children in a good way. And not, you know, I, I gotta say, not, uh, not allowing anything else to be a priority. That I, I, don't, I don't understand. Look, I, I simply do not understand how there are parents it's hard for me to even say it. I can't imagine it, that there are parents that don't put their children first. I, I can't imagine it. What is wrong? What, is, what kind of sick way of thinking is that? What kind of world are we going to create if we're not prioritizing the health and the happiness and the protection of our children? So good child rearing. Number 13 is hope. Not giving up. You know, I remember with, in thinking about that 13th TV poll. I remember one time when I was out praying, it was actually about my book again. I was uh, on one of the highest, I had driven up the highest paved road. I think it's the highest paved road in the United States. It's up around 14,000 feet going up uh, a mountain that has the unfortunate name of Mount Evans here in Colorado. And when I got near the top, I took a hike. And at one point I closed my eyes and just, just to enjoy the peace and that wonderful feeling that you have at a high elevation. When I opened my eyes, I was in the midst of a group of mountain goats. I was kind of in the middle of that family. There was the grandpa mountain goat next to me and the grandma and there were the children. I could reach out my arm and touch them if I wanted to. For some reason, I guess they thought I was part of their mountain goat family. And I, I was so excited. You know, I stayed there until they dispersed just enjoying that feeling of being part of a mountain goat family. Well, I knew one elder who had mountain goat teachings. I went out to see him and told him about my experience. And he said, the mountain goat reminds you that, you know, they're great climbers and they live at that high elevation. You know, they, they can almost scale a vertical wall. I mean, you watch the way their feet adhere to the mountain. It's extraordinary. So what this elder told me is, as you get close to the summit, the path is steeper. As you get close to the summit, the path is steeper. So don't give up. Don't give up. That's a great teaching. Friends, remember this. Please remember, because I know some of you You've lost loved ones because of COVID. You've gone through your own traumas and suffering. We all have. Life does bring suffering. So remember, don't give up. You might be going through a steep trail, but look at that mountain goat. The mountain goat doesn't give up. And as you get close to your goals, to those good goals that you know are still in your mind, still in your heart, the trail might be a little more difficult, but you'll get there. Please have that trust, have that hope. And then uh, what am I up to? Number 13. So number 14 is uh, protection. It's not just at the teepee, you know, that you're putting up the poles and you're going to put that canvas or in the old days, you'd put a brain tan, maybe brain tan buffalo hide around it. Uh, that teepee is not just a source of protection and a reminder, by the way, of the beauty and power of women, because that circle of the teepee is like the woman's womb. So it's, it's nurturing, but it's also to remember our 
role as protectors to protect our family, to protect those who are weaker than us, those who are suffering, those who need help, to protect our mother earth, to be activists for protection of our environment, to be warriors in the best sense of the term. So protection. And then finally, number 15, remember there, I think I started out by saying there's 15 TV poles. Yes. So number 15 is the, you know, the flaps that are at the top of the teepee that you can open to let out smoke if you have a fire, a little campfire in the center of it, you could say. Yes. So those control flaps remind us to be considerate to others and to live in balance, have just, just the right amount of heat, not allow smoke to accumulate, and that we're all, we're all connected and interdependent. That's a basic teaching of the entire teepee because in a circle, where's the beginning and where's the end? You know, no beginning, no end. There's no higher low. There's no, there's no hierarchy in a circle. So those contro control flaps are a final uh, reminder of our, our interconnectedness. And again, this is my, my understanding. And uh, I'm sure it's my limited understanding because I'm still on this learning journey. Hopefully it will never end. I'll never assume that I know something that, uh, this is, this is what I wanted to share with you so far about those, those teepee poles. And again, the way I started that, it's a matter of realizing that this is not like an academic subject. It's not something I study. People sometimes say, well, how did you study indigenous teachings? I'm a little bit offended by that question. I've never studied it. It's, uh, it's how you live, what you see uh, exemplified by the elders, what you learn in community, the stories that you hear, what you learn from people's life experiences, new ways of reevaluating and understanding your own experiences, both easy and difficult. Uh, all, all, all of that is part of our path of becoming whole and natural human beings. Uh, I never expected, uh, you know, I, I never expected to be walking this kind of path it, it it happened and i accepted it but it's certainly nothing i would recommend pursuing if creator wants you to follow a certain way uh you'll you'll know it thank you for sharing those 15 virtues of putting up the tp and it's such a beautiful protocol and, and doing something like that. And I, I don't know if we have anything like that in our westernized culture, but it sure would be helpful to have that sort of reverence for a process, whatever process it is, and to have that reminder at each step, each pull along the way, that there's something else to acknowledge and be mindful of and give thanks for. And I can't think of anything that that we do in our culture, especially in modern cultures that, that really in any way mirrors that, but it's yet, yet there really are incredible. There are spiritual, spiritual roots and practice yeah. in, in every culture. I, I was mm -hmm. delighted when I was teaching in uh, England, uh, what about three years ago to learn how rich the, the, uh, uh, 
the Celtic and Druidic culture is that's still there. There are definitely indigenous roots to European cultures because, because we, we all, if you trace your ancestry back, we all lived in a sustainable way at one point and in harmony with the earth. And I, I always tell people, if you want to learn about indigenous culture, the first thing to learn is about your own ancestral culture. That's why I say my, my path is unusual. I'm somewhat of an anomaly. Uh, I'm not recommending this to other people. And, and my path has not been easy. Uh, but find out if you're from, whether it's Germanic roots or, you know, I was in Iceland a, a number of times, a, a country I just love. And the religion of the Aesir, of the Norse gods, is still there. I mean, Iceland is a country where at great expense, you'll divert the course of a highway if a psychic has has told the government, hey, you're about to offend a troll home or, or a place where the Hulda folk, the hidden folk, the, the little people live. And they will they will change the course of a highway. And there, there are still people that commune with these spirits. There's a vision quest place in Iceland, as there are for other Norse cultures, Scandinavian cultures. I climbed that mountain. I was curious about it when I was there. I climbed uh, Helgefeld, the holy mountain. And you have to go along a certain pathway. You're not allowed to look to your right or left, not allowed to look behind you. You get to an ancient stone semicircle at the top of the mountain. You have to maintain silence the whole time. And then once you're up there, you kind of empty yourself, clear your mind, go into that state of communion with the earth. And then you make, make a prayer up there or even express a wish. So they, you know, there's, there's a, what could be called a vision quest tradition uh, in, in indigenous cultures in Europe. Uh, sometimes these have, you know, not been continuous. You have to do a, a little bit of research perhaps to dig up the vestiges of it. But there are also places where these cultures are still alive and thriving. Iceland being one example of, I'm sure, many. So find out where your roots are and where's the indigenous wisdom there. I think that's a, a great way to start. You know, there are many, there are many uh, healing practices where the first thing you ask someone is, tell me about your ancestry. Where are you from? Because you want that person, I don't know what word to use, client? I don't, I mean, there's really no word. You want, you, want that, you want that person to start realizing that they also have an indigenous root. Might take a little more exploration. Maybe it's not as obvious. Uh, there are spiritual practices in every religion in the world. If, you're, if you identify more with something like Christianity or Judaism or some other culture, you can still find that earth connection, that way of finding meaning, purpose, direction, vision within that tradition. So don't, uh, you know, don't go out looking for it somewhere else until you, uh, uh, you know, click your heels together and say, oh, there's no place like home. It might, might be true for you too. Yeah, I agree completely. It's that ritual seems to be present in all indigenous cultures, that connection to spirit. And I think that's what you just said is a, a great empowering tool for people to maybe start to reintroduce some of those more spiritual based practices into the mundanity of life. And just think about erecting a teepee and, and going through those 15 steps. And what if we adopted similar practices just in our, our everyday activities and we're able to teach that to our kids 
and the presence and the awareness and the mindfulness that that is part of that it's incredible thank you exactly and that and that will give us you know and that extends to where we're living now you might say well i'm not i'm not living in uh you know, in, in Sweden now, even though my ancestors from, were from there, I'm not living in Russia now, I'm not living in England now. Yeah, but there, there's still, you probably still have some ancestral connection, perhaps even some DNA connection. And that will also help you link in a more meaningful way with the landscape and spirit here on Turtle Island. Uh, that you will feel more grounded where wherever you are. Mm -hmm. Ken, I could, as I've said before, I could just listen to you talk for hours. I, I do want to talk about some of the medicine, though. In your book, Honoring the Medicine, and I know all of this is medicine-based, and you're up against a time limit, so I just want to check in and see if there's anything that you want to share about any of the medicine that you have picked up, any teachings that you've gained from the plants themselves or from the medicine, the ceremonies, things such as tobacco, the animals? Great, great question. And, uh, you know, I, I would say that First Peoples Medicine is the, uh, I guess I call it the original holistic medicine. Uh, and if I had to perhaps summarize what are the key facets of this tradition. I would say that the, let's just look at it in terms of, uh, let's say causes of disease, why, why someone becomes ill and what can be done about it. Because that's sort of what you're asking about. I think you're, you, when you say, you know, what have I learned about plants and medicines and so forth? Not necessarily related to illness but just in so, general, holism and health, health and wholeness. Health and wholeness? Yeah. Well, again, the, you know, I think the Cree Tipi pole teaching is the way of addressing that. And also realizing that there are, that we, we are complex uh, creatures and there are always uh, psychological, uh, not just emotional, but also cognitive uh, relationships to any state of balance or imbalance, any kind of disease. And indigenous cultures have some of the earliest forms of uh, counseling in the world. And counseling, what we call talk therapy, has been part of a lot of First Peoples healing practices from, from ancient times to the present, even dream interpretation. Uh, so there's always a psychological component. There's always an environmental component. And when we think about, you know, why someone has developed an illness, it's beyond just looking at exposure to, you know, chemicals and pollutants, but also asking, are, are the salmon in your rivers healthy? Is the land able to, able to grow crops? Are you connected to your physical environment? If not, why? So there's always an environmental component to us feeling whole and happy or conversely, if we're ill. So there's a psychological, there's environmental and also spiritual. Are we in touch with our dreams? 
Are we in touch with the creator? Are we putting roadblocks in the call that is coming to us from the future? Or are we only driven by what I would consider a mistaken belief that we are only who we have been, that we are propelled only by our history or our trauma? That's part of who we are. But the other side to the spiritual dimension of human beings, to the spiritual medicine, is again, are we listening to our dreams? Are we in touch with the divine? And how can we not obstruct that call that's reaching back to us in that timeless dimension in which spirits live, reaching to us now, calling us to our path? So those, those are uh, some of the key aspects i would say of the medicine and we have so many helpers so that we can live that harmonious life everything from you know you mentioned plants of course plants uh, but everyday things that we come in contact with can bring us health and happiness how can we be more sensitive to the sunlight to the moonlight to the feeling of earth under our feet. I remember one elder, when I asked him about uh, purification rituals, he, this was an elder I'd worked with for quite a while. He said, just stand in a stream, stand in a river and feel the way the river is bringing fresh energy into you and carrying away what you don't need. So just standing in the river can be a great, great method of purification. And, uh, you know, we think about things like meditation and uh, those wonderful traditions that are so pronounced and, and well-known from Asia. Well, there's also meditative practices in First Peoples cultures where there's such a reverence for silence. Still another uh, elder who I, I knew quite well, uh, when we would start a ritual together, we would sit at the edge of a river and he explained to me how the, the river is the always moving, always changing spiritual reality. And the shoreline is the illusion of a fixed world, a world of concepts, of beliefs. But the truth is somewhere in between. It's where the river meets the shore. And then he said, the only way you can understand where the conventional reality meets that spiritual realm, where the waking world meets the dream world, is if you, in his words, empty yourself, go into a state of stillness and silence, no words, no thoughts, no concepts, and then just feel, just experience at that borderline place between between waking and dreaming, not captured by either realm, yet capable of entering either realm. That's the way we would start our ceremonies. So meditation, you're gonna, you're gonna find it in every spiritual tradition, but again, there are some unique ways in uh, the first people's cultures of 
of Turtle Island. Mm -hmm. Well, in your book, Honoring the Medicine, you've done such a beautiful job in, in sharing all of these things and so much more. There's so much richness within the book, and I strongly recommend it for anyone who wants to learn more about First Nations medicines. And thank you for, for having the courage to write that and for the countless hours that you put into doing that. And thank you again for coming on to the show to share this and to share your wisdom with people. Is there a place other than the book where people can learn more about you from this lens and, and what you're doing? Uh, sure. I mean, you're welcome to go to my website. I've got some educational articles, a blog, different materials. Uh, if I'm offering a, a talk or a class, it'll probably be listed there. Uh, so go to honoringthemedicine.com. That's the easiest way to remember it, I think. That's uh, the name of my book. So And spell it the English rather than the Canadian, that is the American rather than the Canadian way. Yes. So <laughs> N-O-R-I-N-G, honoringthemedicine, one word, dot com, and you'll you'll see some further information. I have a Facebook page as well. You'll, you can also find it just by doing a search for Honoring the Medicine Ken Cohen Facebook and you, you'll see it. Great. Well, thank you, sir. It's always such an honor to be in your presence and at least virtually. Someday maybe we can do it face to face. Thank you and blessings to all of you. Wishes for health, peace and happiness to all of you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Kenneth Cohen. For more about Ken, please visit his website, honoringthemedicine.com, and also purchase a copy of his book, Honoring the Medicine. If you are interested in studying Western Herbal Medicine, the School of Western Herbal Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned programs, including world's first study options combining Western Herbal Medicine with acupuncture and holistic nutrition. Visit pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our online education in herbal medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at pacificrimcollege.online, including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. Sign up for our newsletter to receive special offers on our newest releases. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at pacificrimcollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, consider your interconnectedness to all things on this planet.